0: This is A Kansas Memory, a Kansas State Historical Society podcast, featuring glimpses of Kansas history from documents in the Library and Archives collections.
1: It is estimated that one-third of the New England farms are mortgaged for more than they would sell for under the hammer. A first-class Connecticut farm, close to a village and large factory, was sold recently for less than $15 an acre. New York farms have depreciated in value 50% within the last 12 years, so that many of them will not now bring as much money as would pay off the mortgages under which they are pledged to creditors. In Pennsylvania, the same conditions exist, and in Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Kentucky, Tennessee, every state in the Union. In addition to these individual encumbrances, railroads and municipalities are nearly all in debt. There are but few, if any, railroads in the country that would sell for enough to pay their debts. Some of them owe many times as much as they are worth. Kansas railroads, for example, are indebted to bonds and stock eight times as much as their assessed valuation amounts to. But it is not the indebtedness, great as it is, of which the debtor complains. His defense is not that he is in debt but that being in debt, property values, including labor, have been forced down by vicious legislation below cost line. And now, when his calamity comes, he finds the money of the country mostly in the hands of comparatively few persons, and that Congress will not come to his relief. He sees his home in the balance. He asks time and a renewal of his loan, but he has answered that his security is growing weaker every day that it would not bring the amount of his debt in the open market, that the time will not be extended. The mortgage will be foreclosed. The home must go. Why this injustice, he asks. When I borrowed the money, my farm was worth three times the amount of the debt. You took it as ample security. Now when dollars have grown more than twice as large as they were then, you refuse to renew the loan, because the same farm, though greatly improved since, has fallen in market value. Am I to blame for these changes of value in the dollar market and in the land market?
0: Though parts of this editorial sound like something you'd hear on radio today, it was written nearly 120 years ago, during the populist uprising of the 1890s, by Kansas senator and newspaper editor William A. Peffer. Peffer was born in 1831 and grew up on a Pennsylvania farm. He tried teaching school when he was 15, but after a few years, set off in 1850 for the California Goldfields. He returned to Pennsylvania penniless, but he hadn't lost his wanderlust. He and his wife Sarah Jane tried farming first in Indiana, then Missouri. After serving in the Union Army during the war, he moved his family to Tennessee, where he practiced law for five years, then once again moved to practice law and Homestead near Fredonia in Wilson County, Kansas, in 1870. He edited two southeast Kansas newspapers, the Wilson County Courier and the Coffeefield Journal, organized the Republican Party in that part of the state, and served in the state senate from 1874 to 1876. In 1881, he moved to Topeka to become an editorial writer for both the Topeka Capitol and the Kansas Farmer. During the 1880s, Peffer moved away from the Republican Party and began urging the farmers to organize their own party, which was first called the Farmers' Alliance, then the People's Party.
1: Their movement was called Populism. The Farmers' Alliance, an industrial union, is a body of organized workers, farmers, mechanics, and common laborers. Numbering with kindred organizations, at least 3 million voters, scattered over 35 states, and the membership is increasing daily. 95% of this growing army are debtors, and not one of a 1,000 of them has any thought of repudiating his debt. This great body of citizens is deeply interested in the credit of their states. They are not repudiators, they are not anarchists. They are every man of them patriotic citizens, loyal to the core many of them having spent some of the best years of their life in the service of their country, and nearly all of them nominally owners of homesteads. No, no, these men do not want to tear down and destroy. They want to build up and save. They want to pay their debts and to keep their homes.
0: Congress had imposed the first graduated income tax to finance the Civil War and abolished it after the war ended. The federal government in the 1890s was financed by excise taxes, tariffs, and the sale of public lands, which put people in the Western agricultural regions at an economic disadvantage compared to Northeastern industrialists. Farmers formed co-ops and granges in an effort to compete better with large corporations.
1: They point to the patent fact that prices of labor and of the products of labor have been falling many years that it requires more days' labor and the produce of more acres of land to pay debts now than it did ten or five years ago, that land values have greatly depreciated, that facilities and means for payments have been very much lessened in late years, and that while all this is true, taxes have increased, and all sorts of money demands, including interest on notes and accounts, have become correspondingly larger. They show, still further, that by reason of the multiplication of inventions and machinery profit margins have become so narrow that in order to ensure any profit on production men must combine energy with capital and labor and must produce in large quantities that it is impossible for the small producer to cope single-handed with the large producer that this applies with special force to farmers and that unless there is an early adjustment in all these respects American farmers will be renters, and the condition of American working people generally will be but little better than Mexican peonage." In
0: 1890, the populace won control of the Kansas House of Representatives. Peffer's image is easy to spot in political cartoons of the time because of his extremely long flowing beard. As the Populist party candidate for the U.S. Senate, he defeated incumbent Republican John J. Ingalls in 1891. He served as Kansas's senator till 1898, and during his term, Congress tried to enact a flat rate federal income tax. It was quickly ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court because, under the U.S. Constitution, Congress could only impose direct taxes if they were levied in proportion to each state's population. An excise tax was imposed on business income to help address the populists' concerns. Although some populists thought a graduated income tax would be better, Peffer did not think the income tax could be fairly implemented.
1: The assessment of the businessman's income must practically be made by himself so that the tax, except for men of rigid and rare integrity, is little more than a voluntary contribution. This is peculiarly the case when the income is very large, so that the strongest temptation to concealment exists just where concealment is most easy. The demoralizing influence of such a tax has no limits. Every man whose return is full and fair sees around him scores of others who seem to him to have profited by the opposite course, and he is too apt to resolve never again to be fined so heavily for his scrupulous accuracy. This influence is progressive, and it affords the only explanation of the fact that the war tax on incomes rapidly grew less productive every year from 1866 till its repeal in 1873, even when no changes were made in the law fixing its rate and incidence. Much has been said of the inquisitorial character of the pending bill, but the fact is that it is remarkably free from provisions which would ensure an effective inquiry into personal incomes. Such provisions could not be enforced in this country if enacted. Confronted with the facts that the tax cannot be collected, from unwilling businessmen without a most oppressive and tyrannical system of investigation, and that our people will never submit to such a system, the authors of the bill have chosen to make their proposal as inoffensive as possible. The result, which all foresee, will force upon a future Congress the choice between despotic methods of inquisition and the abandonment of the tax, but till then they seem content to make it distinctively a tax upon integrity.
0: The populist movement didn't survive into the 20th century, but some of their reforms did. The populists proposed that ballots bearing the names of all the candidates be printed at government expense and made available at the polls and the votes be cast in secret. They also suggested that electing U.S. Senators by popular vote instead of allowing the state legislatures to select them would curb corruption. The 17th Constitutional Amendment, which was ratified in 1913, changed that law. And, of course, the federal income tax, which is on everyone's mind so much this time of year, was established by the 16th Amendment, which also passed in 1913, a year after Peffer's death. Today, Peffer's editorials survive in the newspapers he published and his scrapbook in the collections at the Kansas Historical Society. This has been a Kansas Memory, a Kansas Historical Society podcast. The documents used in this podcast are from Kansas Memory, a virtual repository of primary sources from our collections. The URL for this website is www.kansasmemory.org.